This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. There's a lion's roar in this world. All sentient beings have Buddha nature. The Buddha roared it. Queen Srimala roared it. And uh, innumerable Buddhas and Bodhisattvas throughout space and time have roared it, are roaring it, and will roar it. Continuing on yesterday's theme, a little bit of story regarding the Indian Buddha nature tradition before we look some more at Suzuki Roshi's Buddha nature teachings. So in the Indian tradition, there's a Tathagata Garbha Sutra. Tathagata Garbha means Buddha nature. The Buddha nature that is our true awakened nature, the potential for complete Buddhahood that is the birthright of every sentient being. And in this Tathagatagarbha Sutra, there's various analogies and metaphors. Big part of Buddha's tradition. Because it's hard to um, describe some of these subtle points directly from the get-go, Buddha was always offering metaphors and analogies and similes. So this Tathagatagarbha has a bunch of them for how Buddha nature works. And uh, to compare a few kind of different versions in these different analogies, one analogy the Buddha offers is that um, Buddha nature is like a seed that will grow into a tree called Buddha. Buddha nature is, is kind of like the potential of complete Buddhahood that all beings have. So it's a little different, sometimes anyway, described a little different than Buddha, complete Buddhahood, is when there's no more um, concealing of this true nature. And um, the uh, the peace and the joy and the love and the compassion that is the essence of Buddha nature can shine forth unobstructedly and unobstructedly and um, continuously without break in a completely awakened Buddha. And the Buddha nature is the potential for that. When it's still when, the, when this nature is still somewhat concealed or hidden by, uh, by the rules of samsara, by our 
habitual patterns, beginning as greed, hate, and illusion, so on. So can you see how that could, could be a, an analogy that Buddha nature is like a seed that, that sprouts eventually and grows into a full tree. Buddha nature is the seed and the tree is Buddha. So Buddha offered that analogy. And we could say in kind of different models of the Buddha nature story, this could be called the production model of Buddha nature. In other words, that Buddha is produced by this by Buddha nature, like a tree is produced from the seed. It's like something other than Buddha is the is the kind of cause of Buddha. The seed is a little different than the tree. Of course, they're related, but um, the seed produces later a tree called Buddha. A production model. And there's some problems with this model. You might imagine the way we've been talking, right? Because it's um, that kind of implies that uh, the seed is not really like a Buddha. Actually, the seed is something other than a Buddha. It is the potential that will become a Buddha, but uh, but in a in a more non-dual understanding of Buddha nature, like we have in Zen, this production model is not quite right. But the Buddha offered that analogy because he was coming up with as many as he could, I guess. It emphasizes the potentiality aspect of Another analogy in this uh, Tathagata Garva Sutra, the Buddha teaches is that uh, the Buddha uh, nature is like uh, like milk that can be churned into butter. The Buddha nature is like the milk and the butter is like the full Buddhahood. So it's not exactly um, the same as that production model. We could call this a transformation model. Because the essence of butter is milk, but it's still, the milk still needs to be transformed through this process of practice into butter. The practice of churning, maybe for a long time, uh, turns this milk gradually into butter. It's a transformation model of the other. I think it's a little bit better, but still maybe a little bit off because it's not really that um, the Buddha nature needs to be transformed into anything. It's already complete in a, in a more non-dual model. Another, another analogy for the transformation model uh, the Buddha offers is like a um, um, kind of a poor, destitute, um, homeless woman with you know with nothing, just wearing rags, but giving birth to 
a son that will become the emperor of the entire nation, king of the entire. From this poor, um, struggling baby, is um, this poor, struggling baby will become the the wealthy, powerful king of the country. That's also kind of like a transformation model, gradual transformation. I think all the analogies point out various aspects of Buddha nature's story. But there's other types of analogies the Buddha offers, like uh, Buddha nature's like gold, pure gold nugget. Uh, buried in the dirt or hidden under the floor. There's a lot of these gold analogies in different sutras. The Lotus Sutra, I think, has a really nice one. It doesn't use the term brutal nature, but I think same type of analogy that um, there's a there's two friends. Um, one of them's really poor and one of them's really wealthy. And um, they're, they're uh, just hanging out together, drinking buddies. And, um, and the, poor, the poor man gets really drunk and uh, kind of passes out. And a wealthy friend um, thinks, well, um, I, I have to go. I have work to do around here. Um, but my poor friend, um, I have plenty to offer. I'm just gonna uh, offer him some a big gold nugget. It will take care of the whole rest of his life, actually. And uh, but he's passed out right now, so um, um, and I don't want him to lose it. So I'll, to keep it safe, I'll like um, I'll sew it into to the inside of his shirt, his jacket, and he'll find it there and. And um, when he wakes up and can take care of his life in case I don't see him again. So this is in all of It's like the Buddha, right? Um, giving us this precious uh, gift that will sustain us comfortably forever. And uh, but then this <laughs> the poor man wakes up from with that bad hangover and, um, and goes about his poor life and never thinks to check inside his clothing that there's this priceless jewel that will take care of everything. It's kind of hidden there. And I think maybe, I can't remember exactly how the Lotus Sutra goes, but maybe the friend runs into him again. I think that's how it is. Years later, and say, why are you still wearing all these rags? Um, what about the what about that gift I offered? Huh? <laughs> yeah, someone inside you. The same jacket you're wearing 20 years later. <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't know. So the Buddha has to point it out. What is that which is hidden? So uh and Dogen Zanji, um, in his one bright jewel essay, uh, talking about this Lotus Sutra story, he says, um, 
that a good friend always offers us the jewel when we're drunk. <laughs> it's one of those Dogen which we could understand to mean um, when we're confused and intoxicated by the by the uh, appearances of the world and grasping at them as real. That's being drunk, and that's when the jewel is offered, and that's why we often don't um, don't uh, notice it. Because we're kind of stupor. The jewel, the jewel comes to us in our drunkenness. But it can be pointed out. So in this kind of analogy, uh, a hidden gold, instead of um, calling it a production model or a, or a transformation model, we could call it a disclosure model of Buddha nature. And this, I think, is more like a, a non-dual understanding of Buddha nature. The goal doesn't have to be doesn't have to produce something else. The goal doesn't have to be transformed into something else. The goal is already totally complete and priceless, but it does need to be um, disclosed or revealed. The disclosure model, the revelation model, it has to be revealed in its completeness. It seems to be hidden uh, in our clothing right next to our heart, right under the floor of our own home, and so on. All of them, all three of these models are emphasizing this potentiality that this third disclosure model uh, saying, is saying that the, the potential is um, actually already complete in a sense. Nothing needs to be added to it at all or changed about it. It just needs to be revealed or disclosed. Okay, the Zen stories of Buddha nature are usually more along these sides. So Suzuki Roshi is I think a really profound Zen teacher that uh, can talk about these difficult topics in a way that makes it sound somewhat simple. He talks about, I would say this this disclosure model of Buddha nature in Zen mind, beginner's mind, but he doesn't really use the technical terms. So we might even miss that he's teaching it. But uh, uh, there's some wonderful examples, I think, of this teaching. Before bringing them up, I just looking through some Suzuki Roshi teachings, there's these two these two collections of like really short, pithy, like one-liners of Suzuki Roshi you may have seen them called Zen is right here and Zen is right now. There's two of them. And they're stories from his students remembering conversations. So they're not um, recorded Dharma talks. Um, some, some nice snippets of Suzuki Roshi. Um, one of them that, that struck me and I just, 
have to smile when uh, when reading this one is a student I, I don't know who some student of Suzuki or she asked him um, uh, how do you know if you're enlightened <laughs> people would ask about that kind of thing a lot enlightenment is a big topic how do you know if you're enlightened like maybe i am but i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> and uh i think probably this is a gear you give different answers to this at different times but in this case he said uh how do you know if you're enlightened when you no longer complain <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> That's so um, we might say there's more to the story than that, but that's pretty high standard view of enlightenment, I would say. Maybe very few enlightened people on this planet could <laughs> never complain. We might say, well, that sounds totally different than these Buddha nature teachings, but uh, maybe related if we the more we can um, realize this ever present already complete always okay um ordinary mind uh just this uh, present awareness uh unobscured by all the thoughts and feelings and doubts and uh, stories about it and anything else, uh, plain and simple. Uh, that Buddha nature actually never complains. <laughs> that, that awareness, it's aware of, it's aware of the complaining mind. It's aware of the verbal complaint, but it's not complaining about the complaints. It's just um, it from its perspective, it's all okay. So maybe maybe related to Buddha nature in a roundabout way. But here's some even more direct teachings about Buddha nature from Suzuki Roshi. Shogaku Shunyu Dayo Sho. One of the great phrases, terms coined by Suzuki Roshi is big mind. I think it's used elsewhere these days in the Zen world too. Uh, maybe the Suzuki Roshi came up with this term, big mind. And I think it's a synonym for Buddha nature. He's just trying to talk about it in a, in a very experiential kind of way, big mind. So um, this is from the epilogue of Zen mind, beginner's mind. He says, the big mind in which we must have confidence, trust, is not something which you can experience objectively. In other words, as an object of experience, like, like a color, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, an emotion, we can experience all those objectively as objects of mind, but big mind, is, we can't experience it 
in that way because it is the source of all those experiences. It is, it's not an object of experience. It is that which knows all experience. It is that which knows all objects. The big mind in which we must have confidence is not something which you can experience objectively. It is something which is always with you, always on your side. Your eyes are on your side, for you cannot see your eyes, and your eyes cannot see themselves. Eyes only see things outside, objective things. Big mind Buddha nature is kind of like our eyes that can't see themselves. They're, they're, um, our, we could say, like Buddha nature, our eyes are illuminating the world of appearances. They, they, um, they make appearance possible, but they're not another appearance. We can't see them. They're the source of seeing like that. That's pretty good. We can't. That's why we might become frustrated if we're looking for Buddha nature and looking back and trying to see it. It's that, that's kind of like the eye trying to look back and see itself. We can't find it. Might even say it's the one thing that we actually can't ever find as an object. Um, and yet, though all that is true, Sometimes it's also said that this awareness, this big mind, a Buddha nature, um, can and does illuminate itself. It can know itself, but not objectively, not as another experience or an object, but it is self-knowing, it is self-illuminating, like Rather than, than the fact that an eye can't see itself, it's more like the way that the candle flame illuminates all the objects in the room, but it also illuminates itself at the same time. So, food and tears said to be like that. It doesn't see itself as another object, but it's illuminating itself. And... Uh, there's some debate about this in the Buddhist tradition for many, many centuries, arguments about this kind of thing. But to me, it seems kind of clear. We can, we can run an experiment to prove this, I would say, right now, by just asking, is awareness present for me right now? We can stop and look and check and we can say yes. All of us can say yes. I hope. <laughs> Awareness is present. I know that. And no one can convince me otherwise. I don't know what it is. I can't see it objectively. I can't get a hold of it. But I know that awareness is present right now. I know I'm aware. In fact, it's the only thing that I really know completely. Everything else I'm not too completely sure about. But... Uh, but I am aware. So, you know, what is it that knows? What is it that knows this so confidently that we are aware? It's nothing but awareness itself. It's not some 
other awareness, like awareness calling, hey, the other one, other awareness, come in here and check if I'm aware. <laughs> There's only one awareness, and it's knowing itself in this funny way, right? in this strange way, where we can kind of obvious way, yes, I'm aware now. Awareness is present. I know that. And we don't even have to be Zen practitioners to know that. It's kind of obvious. We could say that is awareness illuminating itself, knowing, knowing itself as present. We can reflect on this kind of experiment and appreciate its implications in Zazen and otherwise. So, Suzuki Roshi says, if you reflect on yourself, that self is not your true self anymore. So if we start thinking about, um, well, in this example, am I aware right now? Yes. Now, if I start reflecting on that and thinking about, well, um, what is this awareness actually? Where is it? Where, how can I get a hold of it? I think that's what he means. If you reflect on yourself in this way, that self is not your true self anymore. Now it's like, it's, it's an idea. You cannot project yourself as some objective thing to think about. We're kind of like, in a way, trying these discussions by talking about Buddha nature, but all the words about it don't really reach it. That's why analogies are kind of nice because they just kind of hint at it. The mind, which is always on your side, right? talking about this awareness, it's always, uh, in a way, it's a sort of double meaning in English. Uh, on your side, it's like, it's working for you. It's rooting for you. It's <laughs> rooting nature, right? But it's, I think he really means all, mainly here, yeah, it's not, it is you yourself, right? It's, it's on, that's what on your side means here. The mind which is always on your side is not just your mind, it is universal mind, always the same, not different from another's mind. It is Zen mind, it is big, big mind. Double big. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's one of those, you know, interesting, interesting places where there's, I think, a little unusual, maybe controversial teachings that I, I like and appreciate. But some scholars might even argue about one universal shared mind, shared awareness. It's not taught that often in Buddha Dharma like this, but I appreciate Suzuki Yoshi slips it in here, right? Um, that this awareness we're talking about, could it be the same, could my awareness be the same as your awareness? Um, indivisible, as we're talking about something that's non-dual, timeless, boundless, and indivisible, uh, if we say it's divided into each of us, then it's divisible. But it's kind of unusual teaching. And um, if anyone 
might doubt that the Buddha ever actually taught this kind of thing. It sounds like a lot of kind of other non-Buddhist Indian traditions do teach this kind of thing. Uh, but um, again, I think it's pretty rare. But I, mean, I really enjoyed a project in the past of looking through the thousand-page Mahaparinirvana Sutra, one of the main sources of Buddha nature, and pulling out a, you know, this, through all these thousand pages, it's a lot about Buddha nature. And to talk about both terms are used. And uh, sometimes contradictory sounding teachings, but, um, but one of them sounds like what we're talking about here in chapter 36 of the Parinirvana Sutra. Uh, this Bodhisattva lion's roar. <laughs> it speaks many, many chapters in the sutra. Um, Simhanada Bodhisattva. <laughs> uh, interesting, it teaches a lot of the sutra. Uh, or is having a conversation with Shakyamuni Buddha in these chapters. I think this is Shakyamuni Buddha saying, one finds the Buddha nature of sentient beings in the different bodies of the beings of the five realms. And sometimes we say six realms. It's just it's both the same thing, basically. And um, from early Buddhism onward, there's this sometimes called five realms, sometimes six. But when you know the six realms, that um, from the bottom up, <laughs> the hell beings, the hungry ghosts, the animal realm, the human realm, the human realm, the um, kind of fighting god, the jealous god realm, and the god realm. The jealous gods, the asuras, are like, um, they're kind of like wannabe gods. <laughs> and they're, so they're, um, it's, it's emphasizing these different types of afflictive emotions. So that gets, that gets jealousy in there. Um, but sometimes there's a type of deva in a way, or a type of god. So sometimes those two get collapsed into one, we call it five realms. Um, so this sutra is mentions five, but those are the five or six, we could say. Um, the Buddha nature of sentient beings is in all these realms, which is good to remember that hell beings equally have the same identical Buddha nature as the gods and the Buddhas. The hungry ghosts have Buddha nature, which is why we're, we try to awaken them with these Dharanis and so on, during that Sajiki ceremony. Buddha says, one finds Buddha nature of sentient beings in the different bodies of all these beings of the five or six realms. But the Buddha nature is always one, and there is no change. Even in this thousand pages, it's, yeah, it might be the only time where it said, maybe there's a few others where it said Buddha nature is one, there's one Buddha nature. I was really spent some time looking for that because I appreciate the teaching. It's not in that many other sutras explicitly. 
but Suzuki Roshi says that here, right? It's universal uh, mind, always the same, not different from another's mind. It's like the Parnivana Sutra to back him up. <laughs> and um, eh, just while we're on this topic, otherwise it's going to get forgotten. This issue about in the body. And this sutra and other sutras say that too, the Buddha nature is in our bodies. It's a little tricky. Maybe we we'll say this is all we talk about Buddha nature is a little tricky. So maybe it's good to emphasize it pervades our bodies and it pervades everything. But again, to me, I um, resonate more with the teaching that uh, it's more like our experience of body our experience of body is generally just a, a bunch of tactile sensations. It's more that those tactile sensations that we call body are appearing in the awareness of Buddha nature. To me, that seems more true and non-dual. Because if there's something called Buddha nature in the body, well, like where in the body? And why is it in the body and not outside the body? Yet, is maybe emphasizing that um, it's really not somewhere else. It's maybe the skillful means of that teaching. And that even our, um, our body that holds tension and pain and so on is filled with Buddha nature. But, uh, so that's what the sutra says here, right? One finds the Buddha nature of the sentient beings in the different bodies of the beings of the six realms. But then in the next chapter, 37 of the Nirvana Sutra, or 39 actually, here, uh, the Buddha says, you may say that Buddha nature lives in sentient beings, but you should know that what is eternal has no place to dwell. If there is a dwelling place, this tells us that what is there is actually impermanent. That's a nice teaching. Anything that has a location is now in the realm of conditioned phenomena and impermanent phenomena. So there's a teaching where Buddhists are sort of contradicting themselves. You know, I was saying it's in the body, but if we look closer, it has no location at all. So Suzuki Roshi says, um, going on in the epilogue here, uh, it's it's um, this universal mind, this Zen mind, big, big mind. This mind is whatever you see. If we're reading this quickly, we might be like, yeah, that sounds, sounds like Zen stuff. But that's just a profound statement. Everything we see out there now, we're talking about the objective realm again. That is this Buddha nature, this big mind. Big minds, um, that which we all share, always the same, on your side, right? It's on your side. But now I'm saying the opposite. Everything you see is also big mind. Now, nah, this is non-duality, right? It's, um, it's, on, it's on our side and it's on your side, too. It's, it's everything that we see out there 
It's just an expression of big mind. How is this so? Well, if we say that this awareness is like space, which by the way, the Nirvana Sutra is really into that analogy. It says Buddha nature is like space. It says that over and over, like ungraspable, boundless, colorless, formless, all-encompassing space. Then um, everything that appears appears within the space of awareness, doesn't it? All the stuff out there. So possible that that this mind, big big mind, is whatever you see, and it is the seeing also. Your true mind is always with whatever you see. He said, it is what you see. That's most non-dual, we could say. And it is with whatever you see. It's a little bit more dualistic, but it's, it's um, pretty good, right? It's the, the mind on your side is with whatever you see, but even more radically, it is whatever you see. Although you do not know your own mind, it is there. At the very moment you see something, it is there. This is very interesting, he says. And I agree with him. <laughs> this is very interesting. <laughs> Your mind is always with the things you observe. So you see, this mind is at the same time everything. <laughs> so, Here. This is the epilogue. Zen mind begins mind. Um, I think later it's a long epilogue, and uh, later in that section, um, he says, um, "We must have more experience of our practice. At least we must have some enlightenment experience. Some is in italics." You must have some enlightenment experience. He tends to downplay this enlightenment experience business, right? Is a Yoshi. But sometimes he slips it in in the epilogue. <laughs> you must have some. And then he's going to talk about it. Uh, you must put confidence in the big mind, which is always with you. You should be able to appreciate things as an expression of big mind. This is more than faith. This is ultimate truth, which you cannot reject. So if you have this confidence, this is your enlightenment experience. That's one way of saying it. I think it's in the Zen tradition, not uncommon in the Zen tradition. Yeah, and confidence in the big mind, like, yeah, we hear these teachings over and over, and like, yeah, it makes sense, it's strange, but it's interesting. And I can't see it, I can't get a hold of it, but I, but I know it more and more, it's the case, and I'm feeling more and more convinced that it is the case. And I think it's interesting because sometimes we think, we think of um, like faith, and trust 
and confidence are almost like synonyms. Something that Chinese terms you could you could uh, translate in these three different ways. But here he's saying, making the point, this is more than just faith. It's um, it's something you must have confidence in. Maybe faith is like I hear it and it sounds good and I want to believe it. Like, um, Abrahamic faiths are um, where you're just told this is what you need to believe. Well, I can't, I want to see God directly. No, just have faith. So I think the Zen realm is yes, maybe that's the starting point, but then we must have confidence in God. Big mind, too. He says, if you have this strong confidence in your big mind, you're already a Buddhist in the true sense, even though you do not attain enlightenment. Is that a, is that a contradiction? Because mm. right. mm. he says, this is your enlightenment experience. Is this confidence? So maybe enlightenment, maybe he's saying, is not just a, a momentary experience, a like kencho or something, but it's the all-pervading, unchanging Buddha. Uh, we don't have to go that far. But uh, some confidence <laughs> in big minds will, um, will be on our side, will serve us well. So then uh, another really great chapter, maybe my favorite chapter, I have so many of them. Zen mind beginner's mind, the mind waves chapter. I bet every, everybody read Zen mind beginner's mind. If you have it, it's short one, right? It's classic, it's packed, chock full of goodies. <laughs> so um, this is an, an interesting, again, kind of a, I've seen a really radical pointing out teaching that is easy to just pass over. If your mind is related to something outside itself, that mind is a small mind, a limited mind. Right? That's called duality. Your mind is related to something outside itself. It's it's a right, it's it's uh, we say the dualistic consciousness arises dependent on the objects of perception. It arises dependent on colors and sounds and thoughts and feelings. So it's that kind of mind is related to colors, sounds, thoughts, and feelings. But that small mind, or we could say the individual consciousness, Vijnana. Uh, if your mind is not related to anything else, then there's no dualistic understanding in the activity of your mind. You understand activity as just waves of your mind. Big mind experiences everything within itself. Do you understand the difference between these two minds? The mind which includes everything and the mind which is related to something. You know, we talk so much about um, everything is related. Everything is connected. But that's kind of, from this deep perspective, I would say, um, that still there's a duality there. There's something to be related to. In, in 
non-duality, there is no other to relate to. It's one boundless, all-inclusive space, which appears as different images <clears throat> that are related to each other, like the, like the images on the screen are um, interdependent and related to each other. But from the perspective of the screen, there's no relationship because there's nothing outside of it to be related to. You follow? So it's kind of like saying this, this um, you know, connected or related or dependent relationship is actually the realm of small mind. I think this is a, is a profound teaching. And he's really kind of pushing the point. Do you understand the difference <laughs> between uh, these two minds? The mind which includes everything, one big mind, and the mind which is related to something outside itself. So it's good to understand the difference between them, conceptually and experientially. And, uh, but then he goes on the punchline here. Actually, these two minds are the same thing. <laughs> but the understanding is different and your attitude towards your life will be different according to which understanding you have. That everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. Whatever you experience is an expression of big mind. So uh, when he says they're the same, that's um, just like I think the, the images on the screen work nicely for this, right? It's good to really clarify the difference between the interdependent images on the screen, the realm of dependent arising, of different, different interdependent phenomena, experiences, and the realm of the screen, which is just one undifferentiated suchness. It's good to make the distinction between those, right? And um, really good to clarify that distinction. And once we clarify the distinction, then to see that those two are not actually different because the images on the screen are one with the screen. So we can't say that the realm of the images is entirely something other than the screen. It's just a covering of the screen, right? So these things that sound kind of paradoxical, I think the screen analogy um, makes these seeming paradoxes uh, appear like not actually paradoxical. It makes it's kind of obvious on the, in the screen. Right? Can you follow this? Mm -hmm. Then you apply the screen analogy to our own experience right now. That's where we have to take the leap out beyond the analogy. I think it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good leaping point, the screen analogy. Just now, now we're extending this flat screen, flat two-dimensional square screen is now a three-dimensional boundless space-like screen. That's the base, that's the leap we have to make. It's called awareness. And the images on it are 
are you know one with the space that they're appearing in. Right. So it's taking the the two dimensional screen analogy and expanding it into kind of three dimension or beyond dimensional space. You follow that? Subtle, but you can hear it again and again as we go back to the mind waves chapter. Hearing the teachings again and again and again and again and again. And again. I find it's just so helpful, and that's what the Buddha says. There's, there's various kinds of prajna. One is just hearing the teachings again and again and again, reading the teachings again and again, especially the hard ones. The easy ones, maybe once is enough. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's okay, but this kind of teaching may be good. Again and again, with, with you know nine different analogies for Buddha nature approach it from all these ways and so on. And then reflecting on these teachings in our own experience where we leap out of the analogy into our own zazen. Right? How is it that my awareness is like the screen right now? We can explore this. This is re re reflection and you know, contemplating the teachings we've heard is another kind of wisdom. But it's still, you know, we're using thinking mind still. But it's it's a step beyond just hearing and understanding the words. It's like applying the words to our direct experience. And then uh, the third type of wisdom is when we're no longer even using analogies or, or you know, contemplating these points. We're just being big mind itself, one with all minds and all and the whole world. But uh, it's so helpful to have these first two types of wisdom before that final wisdom. And maybe Zen, because it's the separate transmission outside the scriptures, sometimes downplays the first two types of wisdom. Just wholeheartedly sit and jump off body and mind. Well, maybe. Of course, we need teachings. You know, how to, how, what this means. So, um, this is Yoshi's other published book, Not Always So. Uh, in the um, chapter called Resuming Big Mind, which is an interesting phrase that uh, Suzuki Yoshi used quite a bit regarding big mind. Not so much attaining big mind, um, seeing big mind. Um, even realizing big mind, but resuming big mind. I think it's very skillful. It's already, we're already our big mind. Just resume <laughs> this reality that we have. Yeah. 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 In this awareness, is this awareness itself expressing itself as the sound of an anthem and the thought that that sound is somehow associated with something called an airplane? All that's appearing in this space 
luminous space. He says, most of the time in our everyday life, we're involved in the activity of small mind. That's why we should practice zazen and be completely involved in resuming the big mind. So in our practice, we rely on something great and we sit in that great space the pain you have in your legs or some other difficulty is happening in that great space. As long as you do not lose the feeling that you are in the realm of Buddha nature, you can sit even though you have some difficulty. This is like, you know, not just some abstract philosophy, this is like helping us get through sashimi <laughs> when it starts to become uncomfortable sometimes. Um, what, a, what a wonderful teaching. We're sitting, waiting for it to end in this pain. It's like, what about Buddha nature um, teachings right now? Well, how does that go again? Forget about that stuff. I'm just trying to get through this prayer with my legs. <laughs> it's so easy to do that. Right? Last night, there was, I don't know what was going on, this music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even like continuous. It was like, right. some noise, what do I miss? And then it would turn to, okay, so curious like this. <laughs> it was, I found it hard to resume big mind. But it's like, is that, but I was thinking about it. I was like, what about the space in which the sounds are just happening and the, the mind that's, uh, doesn't prefer silence over weird music? <laughs> it's, um, it was a oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So far away or on somebody's TV. Well, we're kind of, you know, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. That's what probably cars driving. We weren't hearing the live game. No, we can probably yeah. hear the stadium. Yeah. Yes. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Oh, that's why it's all these snippets right. yeah. of music. And, right. like, why don't you just play a whole song? I can enjoy it. Did you yeah. hear the camera so you ever right. the story? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's right. <laughs> 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 to like 10 or 11 or something. <laughs> Don't they know people are in sashimi? Oh no. <laughs> well, thanks for revealing <laughs> this, what was happening there. For a while, I thought like, maybe I'm just going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even going to happen. There's no football monster. So, Suzuki Roshi says, to, to exist in big mind is an act of faith. So, this issue of faith. And, um, and yeah, I think he's, he's exploring this idea of faith. Earlier, we heard, right, he says, um, this is more than faith. You must have confidence in this. So here in another book, he's saying, 
around the same point in big minds. Uh, to exist in big mind is an act of faith, which is different from the usual faith of believing in a particular idea or being. It is to believe, and I would maybe say like, to have confidence in, that something is supporting us and supporting all our activities, including the thinking mind and emotional feelings. All these things are supported by something big that has no form or color. It's impossible to know what it is, but something exists there, something that's neither material nor spiritual. But we don't want to define it in a category. Something like that always exists, and we exist in that space. You could say we, who we really are, is that space, but we as sentient beings, as individual people, we exist in that space. That is the feeling of pure being. Since we have some more zazen today to explore these things if you like, and any questions, yes. May have said this at some point during this retreat or some other time when I wasn't fully present for it, but could you define a sentient being? Mm -hmm. And I, I noticed that in six realms, it's animals, it's bodies, they're animals, but. And other creatures. And other creatures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, but what is a sentient? We did, I, th I think it was maybe yesterday. Yesterday, I'm maybe, back in the kitchen. Yeah, maybe you were in the kitchen. Where, just to have, see if I can remember. And it, we came up with four definitions, I think, of sentient beings. Um, one is that, and these are kind of tradition, different people have, in the book, define sentient being. Uh, one is um, sentient being is a synonym for Buddha nature. <laughs> <laughs> that's, in other words, that's what sentient beings really are is Buddha nature. <laughs> One definition. Another definition, <laughs> this one's good, but it's completely the opposite of that, that one. <laughs> Buddha, uh, sentient being is the obscurations to Buddha nature. <laughs> and uh, it is that which obscures Buddha nature. Because uh, Buddha nature is um, is vast space um and uh the third was um sentient beings anyone remember um sentient beings um are dependent arising we were talking about the rules of the game the sentient being game the, the bottom line rule of the sentient being game is dependent arising that everything that happens in a realm of body and mind is um, arising according to conditions. And uh, that's the rule. So that includes karma, like everything we do has an effect that comes, what goes around, comes around, this kind of law. Uh, you could say that almost like that law 
like almost like karma is sentient beings. Mm. I don't know, I think that's what it was yesterday. Um, I don't know, fourth. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but but in the in the tradition now, um, especially in the Mahayana, but maybe in the earlier tradition too, it's it's um the word sentient being starts getting used. I mean literally it means like sattva, sentient being. Um literally sentient being or living being, but um but it gets used as a kind of like the meaning of unenlightened beings. So in like Dogen and Zen texts, you often see like sentient beings and Buddhas, and sentient beings and Buddhas are not too. So it's that's often how it gets used. So like Buddhas are not strictly speaking sentient beings. They're um because they're not in, within the six realms anymore. But the way he talks about it is almost like they they do come into each other. Or yes. Fight, you know, like yeah, yeah. If you're deluded about. Uh, oh, yeah. Dogen, Dogen, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, right. And the Gendra Koan. Uh, those who are great realization of delusion are Buddhas. And those who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings. There's another nice definition. <laughs> those who are deluded about realization. That's a good one. That's so good. it's less sort of dualistic, right? Because who knows? Maybe, yeah. maybe one is deluded. And, from... Yeah, and it's, it's a wonderful statement that Buddhas don't eliminate delusion, but they understand what delusion is. And from our point of view like today, this discussion's point of view, we could say that great realization of delusion, like the images on the screen is kind of the realm of delusion. Great realization of these images is to see that in their actual essence, they're nothing other than the screen itself, just playing out in this way, the screen like, um, you know, manifesting as delusion. You could say that that'd be one way to say it. that's great realization of what delusion is. It sounds like, like how a Buddha would understand it, delusion. Uh, instead of being all of these stories uh, about realization, but they're they're just deluded stories. Like all of these today. Um, <laughs> Strictly speaking, just deluded stories told by a sentient being. <laughs> and, and then, uh, uh, what about the Buddha nature of non-sentient beings? Mm -hmm. Well, we heard Suzuki Roshi um, say, uh, everything you experience is Big mind, is that how he said it? Everything you see. Everything you see is, is this big mind. I just, I have to go back to the kitchen, but I just wanted to follow up before I leave, which is, um, I think that was the question actually. Like, if everything that you see, everything you experience, which will include perhaps non sentient beings, according to some definitions of sentience, well, then. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. and tiles, walls, and rocks. Yes, yes. So, 
uh, that to me kind of coheres with what you often talk about in this boundless, edgeless, including everything. Including everything. And then it's like, where do I, where does one thing begin and another That's end? Right. There are no things that begin and end. It's all yeah. seamless reality. Yes. Um, exactly. And that makes me think about uh, Uchi. You know, I can't remember the exact translation of this, but something about the universe arraying itself it takes on any form. Whatever mm -hmm. you see is an expression. Yeah, and then that, that is seeing necessary for sentient beings to be aware. That's a whole other <laughs> realm of questioning. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is a clam aware? Does it's not looking, but it's aware on some level. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this yeah. Is, it's endless. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, just before you go, there's yeah. just on one point about this that I think is interesting. Um, bit of history is this Parinirvana Sutra that was written in fourth century India. Um, says amongst these thousand pages has this just one little point uh, uh, in chapter 42 um the buddha is uh talking about that all through the sutra it's saying all sentient beings have buddha nature or are buddha nature and then um one point in the sutra it says non-buddha nature refers to walls pebbles rocks this particular list that we keep hearing in these end things so non-Buddha nature refers to walls, pebbles, rocks, and non-sentient beings. So that sutra in old India is saying those things don't count. We're talking about sentient beings because a rock doesn't have the potential to be a Buddha and so on. But in China, that they're like, I think they were noticing this particular Nirvana Sutra phrase because that was a dominant sutra for Buddha nature understanding, and they wanted to challenge it. So um, it was before Zen, actually, the Tian Kai school in China started talking about the Buddha nature, the insentient, and using this phrase that the uh, walls, pebbles, rocks, and tiles, and so on, um, do have Buddha nature, kind of contradicting the sutra. Uh, in just the way that Chono was saying, because they're all they're all appearing in space and uh, of they're awareness. The Dharma. <laughs> and they're, yes. Yeah, and they're, but if we're seeing them as expressions of Buddha nature, that's particularly how they're, they're preaching the Dharma of Buddha nature. They're roaring the lion's roar. The candle on the cup on the altar are roaring. A lion's roar mm -hmm. Buddha nature <laughs> in this way. So it was like this, and then Zen picked up on the Chantai um, insentient Buddha nature thing and ran with it in the name of expanding um, the vision of non duality to really include everything. Thanks for that question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes. Does the literature describe the uh, some sort of uh, sorrow or uh, a veil of despair at recognizing the extent of grief? Yeah. Yeah. I understand it would be lifted. 
moving beyond that. Yes, it, um, what comes to mind particularly uh, is Queen Shimala. You're not in the class? Okay, I think those who are, we'll cover this in the last class. You can listen to the recordings if you want. But um, she says near the end of the sutra, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, Sri Devi says, if there were no Tathagata Garva, the Buddha nature, there would be no um, kind of weariness and and sorrow um, and kind of like disillusionment with um, the pains and pleasures of samsara. It would it wouldn't be this because that's part of the Buddhist path is becoming disillusioned with the the suffering of samsara, the discontent of all this impermanent, dissatisfactory stuff. So, um, so she's saying, maybe for the first time, it's because of Buddha nature that we get that we get sad about um, the suffering of samsara, and because of Buddha nature that we then wish for nirvana. Interesting. So it's kind of um, saying. Why, why do some people um, realize that their life is not going so well and they want to take up Zen practice? Um, I could say uh, it's um, that's because of our Buddha nature. That's how she's saying. And um, when I was in the monastery in Japan with um, Tangan Havada, I remember one time in Dokusan. He didn't speak English so this is to, to a translator in Japanese, but he, um, he asked um, why, why do you practice Kokyo? Why, why are you practicing Zen? Why do you come all the way over here to, <laughs> to sit in this freezing Zen and eat this food? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sit hour after hour. Why? And, and I said, uh, uh, to be free from suffering. And he said, no, nope, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think I tried a few more answers. No, no. I, okay, I give up. Why do I practice? <laughs> and he said, busho, which is definitely Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's that's why you practice. Uh, we could almost hear it like a double meaning. This is this is Buddha nature's pulling you into this practice. You can't escape it. And you can try to resist Buddha nature, but it wants to reveal itself. Uh, it wants to see through the obscurations. So it's it's it pulled you here. Um, or you could also say, why do we practice Buddha, Buddha nature? Buddha nature is the reason we practice is to realize and have confidence in Buddha nature. That'd be like another way of understanding. It's one word answer. Busho. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs>
So it's almost like we don't want to personify Buddha nature into some having some intention. You know, almost like uh, like it's God's will, something like that. Almost sounds like it's God's intention. Uh, I think that's that's because that's anthropomorphizing Buddha nature a little bit, but it's more like the reality of Buddha. Um, because it is our, our true nature for all of us. It, um, it's not really that it wants to reveal itself with that intention. It's more like it is just shining and, um, and, uh, and it like the light, you know, breaks little like cracks in the, the wall of obscurations because it's powerful. Maybe more like that in intention. Um, I was thinking about sentient beings and what's not a sentient being, because we have all the definitions for sentient beings. Um, so that's what got me thinking about it. But then the, the rocks, walls, like if I think about it in the context of the planet as a whole, right? Like mountains are born, rocks are formed. This is a process, right? All these things are created and collected out of other things over time. So in some way there is like a, there is an activity of building, yeah. which is usually what you associate with something that is sentient. Yeah. So there's an activity. There's a, everything is impermanent. Yeah. Everything is constantly changing. So, um, but a sentient being traditionally is more than just that which is changing and evolving because everything is changing. Right. So what is what's the line of what's not sentient being? Because <laughs> like, rocks are not diluted. Probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> is that because it sends you beings or delusions or mm -hmm. like things? Yeah. I think one of the nice way to look at it in the in the more kind of original sense of sentient being, before we break down the duality and say that everything is Buddha nature, before we take that step, I think it's it's also nice to reflect on the um this this um term, this modern term by um, uh, the philosopher Thomas Nagel. Mm -hmm. Thomas Nagel. Yeah, it's Thomas. Mm -hmm. Who, is, um, who uh, wrote this article that is, is now kind of circulating amongst the Tathagata Garba community. <laughs> he was, didn't, I mean, he probably knew of Buddhism, but it wasn't enough. He wrote this article called "What It's What It's Like to Be a Bat," mm. a good one for Austin. He said the point being that there's there's something it's like to be a bat, and apparently he chose the bat because um, they're so different from us. Mm. They navigate with radar somewhere. Echolocation. Echolocation. <laughs> Yeah, it's like we can't imagine how to navigate like a location. That's a different type of being for sure. But um, but he said there there must be something it is like to be a bat. I think he really nailed something beautifully with this language. We don't know what it's like to be a bat, but there must be something it is like to be a bat. And um, and it must be something it's like to be a dog and uh, and a cow. And a chicken, and you know, 
like an earthworm. That's that's my um, my trust is that there is something it's like to be an earthworm. It's called a sentient being, very different from a human. No thinking. You don't need. You, I think that's part of the point. You don't need thinking to be a sentient being, but there's something it's like, um, and probably there's something there's some rudimentary form as you go more and more primitive, having to do with pleasure and pain. I think for earthworms, there's probably is something it's like to be like, um, you know, like stuck on an end of a fishhook and it's not pleasant. So there's something it's like. I think that's a nice definition of a sentient being. Can you, could you call the earth, the planet itself a sentient being? Does it breathe and it has cycles and it does, it has like preferences? It pushes, <laughs> it has self-correcting cycles, right? It's pushing yeah. for certain things well, because it's... It, yeah, yeah, so so this is a great, this is why I really like this Thomas Nagel thing because I would say like scientifically speaking, as far as we know so far, um, there's there's has so far been no evidence that there is something it is like mm -hmm. to be the planet, right? See the difference? Mm -hmm. Yes, it has all these self-correcting mechanisms. It's like a sentient being in many ways, Gaia. But, uh, and there may be that it's some, that, that it has an awareness or something, but there's no, um, it's more like just depending on horizon is amazing, miracle. I don't know if I've heard of any evidence for that. There is something it's like to be an earth. Again, something it is like is, is closely related to this earlier point of like when we ask, is awareness present right now? And we can say, yes. What is it that knows awareness is present? Awareness knows this. So um, that's a, it's a self-illuminating awareness. Um, there's something it's like to be a person has to do with the fact that we're aware of being aware. Now, is an earthworm aware of being aware? It, I don't think it can do this exercise of asking, but um, my understanding of Buddha nature is that it would be naturally aware that it's aware. Like before we ask, are we aware of being aware? We already are aware that we're aware. This is why we remember. Memory is another is another um, evidence for this. Like, we remember that an experience happened to me yesterday. So, um, and animals, of course, have memory, not as accurate maybe as humans, but they, they have trauma from childhood and stuff, right? Dogs do. Yeah. So, so I would say that's evidence that there's something it's like to be a dog and, um, and the dogs are aware of being aware. They just don't know that they're aware of being aware. Can you follow? And the earth, I don't think, is we could imagine a sort of new age story like this or something. But um, I think it's a nice distinction. Uh, yes. I have to think, um, because it feels like you know, there's all these possibilities like that you can think of, and the more we learn about in science about living things, the wilder things get. Yeah. Like maybe 
all of our mitochondria are actually running us. Mm -hmm. um, so, where are we anyway? But the thing I, the way I sort of wondered about it is maybe, I mean, the teachings are designed for beings like us. Yeah. Right. And so, in that context, you know, you can define these things. And it doesn't necessarily mean, um, things that aren't like us, you know, are kind of outside things, but they're, they're, they're not, the teachings are in a form that makes sense to us. Mm -hmm. They're designed for us. Designed for us and has a, they're designed for a reason. Probably it's just interesting to think about such things, but more importantly, it's good not to lose sight of why are, did all these teachings arise in the first place? They're meant for this unique human right. condition of right. suffering, right. to relieve suffering of humans in particular, yes. um, and help. And then the hum by the human suffering being maybe we can help relieve the suffering of hungry ghosts and hell beings and animals. But um, yeah, so, so it's another another way of saying um, ascension beings are those that suffer. And, um, and suffering in the Buddhist definition of suffering, in his very first um, uh, teaching, what is suffering? Suffering is grasping this body and mind as a self. That's the kind of definition. So these teachings are for us sentient beings that do that. Do dogs grasp their body and mind as a self? think they do <laughs> actually yeah. in a slightly different way than humans but not not as extremely we're really into it dogs are somewhat into it like if you if you're cruel to them and they're like afraid of you right so um i think they're like they're trying they're concerned they're concerned about their bodies and minds dogs seem to be right are earthworms well they do seem to want to eat and reproduce and stuff, but is that just mechanical? Right. Do they need the teachings? Is, are they connected? Right. They don't need these teachings. Right. They, they can't access these teachings. <laughs> yeah. they might, there might be other teachings for the Yeah. Because yeah. even trees, trees don't have nervous systems. So in that exactly. sense, they, but we know now that they are that they communicate, that they're extremely mm -hmm. connected to mm -hmm. other tree beings yeah. around them and yeah and some might say that they suffer yeah but personally i, I kind of feel like if we're using the buddhist definition right. of dukkha grasping a, a body and mind as itself it needs a kind of somewhat conceptual mind which i think dogs have somewhat conceptual mm -hmm. mind rudimentary in order to do and what i what seems to me is that says more about the teachings mm -hmm. and it, does, it doesn't mean trees aren't somehow important or don't have lives that are yeah, they're more like buddhas yeah yes. thank you nature and <laughs> so we're sentient beings but the trees are buddhas because because they have this issue of suffering yeah and we might say when you see like a you know a dead tree is it suffering this is my my like intuition is that um it's not suffering. And I think because it doesn't have this affliction, to, to say that the tree is suffering is, to me, it's an insult to the tree mm -hmm. because it's saying you're grasping. Mm -hmm. 
if it's if there's no grasping, there's no suffering. That's, that's the Buddhist definition. There's yes, there's old age sickness and death of trees and plants, but is that dukkha? I don't think so. I think they're fine yeah. with that process. They don't have a they don't have a problem. Or like Suzuki Roshi, if he's saying, how do you know if you're enlightened? You, how does the tree know if it's enlightened? It doesn't complain. <laughs> it's kind of like it's enlightened. I don't think she's, you know, yes, they definitely respond mm -hmm. to our care for them. But uh, it's, I think, interesting to explore the Buddha's definition of suffering, dukkha, involves this kind of like grasping. So even, even really, um, I, I don't know, I get down to earthworms, do they, um, do they have some kind of grasping? Almost by, we don't know. But there's probably something it's like to be an earthworm. And maybe there's some, it looks like they maybe have aversion towards pain and attraction towards pleasure. And in that case, if you have that basic setup, then maybe there's some grasping. Yes. Um, one trees actually had something interesting that they they actually do feel pain and they like when even if you hold up scissors to them and you don't actually cut it, there is like a response that goes on where they actually like pull energy mm -hmm. out of their mm -hmm. like the tips. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, it, it seems like that could possibly almost be like an aversion to potential pain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If it starts getting in the realm of like like a sentient being and um you know. I don't know where we draw these lines, um, but um, you could say like, is it aversion or is it just a natural self-preservation response? You could say that might be the dif a different dividing line between grasping, which is the definition of suffering, and a natural response. Like like for a human, when we um, when we're like talking to someone and we just kind of rest on the hot stove for a minute, you could say that's a that's an a bodily, we're programmed right, to, to take our hand away. Is that dukkha in the sense of grasping and aversion? I would say not really. It's not a problem. Actually, it's a good thing that we, and it's natural. And then later we may, oh, I burned my head now, or now it's dukkha. <laughs> I wish I hadn't done that. And like, that was so stupid. <laughs> now this is dukkha. There's dissociation. I mean, some, 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 even humans, uh, they don't, they don't um, necessarily know they're suffering. They're even suffering their whole lives because of their own dissociation. And if we look at what the human life is, it goes back to you know, pre-cellular organisms, and they still live within us. We're still in the There's they're nesting, alive in the moment with this unfathomable uncertainty. And even in our mitochondria, there are these like temples of puja, of ritual, of all of this activity, and they're compelled. And that has been the long history of this very consciousness throughout all the years of life on Earth. That all lives within us. And there's this grace to have senses in this kind of unaware, Attitudes like with white supremacy, not really giving a look at how hard life is, how long the struggle has taken us to get here and hear these teachings. 
kind of looted we still are as a species. <laughs> so well, so at least, at least in a five senses that we can talk and do something about something. Some people can, some people can less. But the notion of awakening, um, if we see the wall, that same awareness, that awareness is uh, infused within it. Just, you know, we see ourselves as this, we're not this. We're, what's seeing this is some combination of all these activities and neurons. So, you know, this is me. That's that is two consciousnesses that which eliminates everything. And so this can be the Buddha nature, but the sentient beings, they have, they have, yeah, that's the aspiration. They have the aspiration. Yeah, that's one. And it, it seems to be a good reason to do it because <laughs> there's so much suffering even in this body, mm. you know, yeah. in all life. Yeah, and the and the Buddha's <clears throat> saying. It's possible to become completely free, and uh, however, however deep we want to take it, however far we want to take it, um, it's, it's available if we trust that it's so. It's striving through us through all the evolution. It's, it's been striving. The brutal nature. Uh, yeah, what's underneath that sees this nice has been wanting to uh, manifest. Yeah, it's like ancestors are starting to through us. Collective consciousness. Perhaps. What do you think? Collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's just what it is, though. Mm -hmm. It all doesn't reach from one life. Mm -hmm. okay. If there's a collective consciousness, maybe that has something to do with the undifferentiated mm -hmm. nature. Oh, I see. Yes. So when it's taught that only humans can become like perfect Buddha, right? Is that like is it that it's only possible for humans, or is it just like kind of like Karen was saying that like the teachings are really talking about like the specific yeah like, I think that's experience mm -hmm. that like trees are already doing their own Buddha thing. I think that's yeah. I think, yes, this point that that um, Karen brought up is is the Buddha project. Is kind of more for humans to do and saying because it comes packaged in these subtle words and so on it i have a hard time doing that i don't know if i've heard that it, humans is the only realm that can become a, a realized complete buddhahood from kind of the starting point of that now of course the teachings say we've all, all been through all these realms already infinite times so it's more like the lifetime in which Buddhahood is realized is almost always during a human life, but um, there may be there may be exceptions. Also, or devas of these realms, the God realm of devas. Um, I think there are teachings that they sometimes also do realize um, types of awakening uh, in these upper realms, and I say the lower realms are. Um, there's just so much suffering. That um, it's just overwhelming. So, um, and it's humans is kind of in the middle between these really comfy devas and the really painful palpines. <laughs> and so, we have enough suffering that gives us the incentive to practice, mm -hmm. but not so much that it's so overwhelming that we can't even like, think about anything other than just being immersed in that suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, but I think it's, it's not saying that humans. I would hear it is not so much that humans is better than other realms, 
which could be easily mistaken like that. It's more that like humans are the ones that do this particular kind of Buddha thing that we really need. You could say maybe that, you know, we just have a unique kind of suffering in the human realm. That so much of our suffering comes from our like overactive mind mm -hmm. that other beings have more of this raw kind of suffering. We have more existential suffering. <laughs> so, and animals, I think, have less existential, maybe not existential suffering. Maybe the ones that hang out a lot with humans, such as that. Yeah. This existential suffering, you can say, is a really highly developed false view of a separate self. Us <laughs> <laughs> humans are amazingly um, good at. Yes. I have one question. That's, okay, um, one more. <laughs> so I was thinking about confidence and faith. And I was like, I can build, like, confidence is a word I feel like I, I use. And I can build confidence through practice, but mm -hmm. I love that little thing. But what is it? Can you speak a little bit more about an act of faith versus having confidence in? Yeah, well, I think what well, I think what Suzuki Roshi may be critiquing about the word faith mm -hmm. in these kind of two two places there um, is a, what I think of as kind of like a blind faith. Mm -hmm. I said like Abrahamic faith, just in my understanding of it, is that some like there's a faith that's based on scripture alone, maybe. Mm -hmm. We do. Buddha does say, you know, there's he offers the scriptures to have faith in, but the Buddha is always saying, you should test this out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. That's the unique thing of, of Buddha's teaching. So um, don't just believe what I say blind with blind faith. Um, but maybe we do start with somewhat blind faith. We start with like, mm. the sounds good, or, uh, it rings true, I'm not sure about it. Let me look further, especially let me look further into my own experience. And, uh, and then when we have some, some experiential uh, verification of that which we have faith in, even in any small way, then you could say, now it's, I would put it in this category of trust or confidence. I think those are kind of like synonyms. Mm. You see the difference? Yeah, like verified faith is confidence. Yeah, mm. verified faith is confidence. Yeah. Mm. And like, it doesn't even have to be total enlightenment. Like, I, I like this example of it, is awareness present right now? Or, in other words, is there something it's like? to be alive right now? <laughs> Same question. Um, yes, there definitely is. And like, was that just your faith? No, <laughs> I told, that's my total confidence. Well, actually there's not really something it's like to be you, someone might say. I don't believe you. You can try to convince me, but I have, no, I have total confidence that there's something it's like to be aware of right, right now. So that's like a, that's a verification kind of, and it's it's getting it's in the in the direction of verification of Buddha nature, which we could start calling terms like awakening or enlightenment. So there's some elements. It's a little too simple to say just 
confirming that I'm aware right now. <laughs> is it? But um, but it's the right track, and it's a nice example that um, because it's an example of a um, a non-conceptual verification, which is what's talked about in awakening. It's not just like knowing that the words are true. It's like knowing your bones and gut and heart, right? And isn't it like that? Is it, am I aware right now? Yes. Do you know that like through and through, like without any trace of doubt? Yeah. Is it just a story that you have? No. <laughs> so so it, I think it's a really neat example. This is what we're talking about. Direct non-conceptual verification. Wow. Around, and you say that same that same confidence if then we apply it to um, well is everything that's happening nothing other than this awareness right now and that this awareness is is always at rest and and has no problem with birth and death um, you say ah, we have to go a little further but if we have that same confidence around that then we could call it like um and awakening at the moment of confidence. And then if there can be unbroken confidence, like when someone's pointing a gun at our face <laughs> or something, yes. then we could call it Buddha. And, and also that we know that, and there's infinite unconditional love for the one who's pointing the gun at this. And without, without wavering from that. And the Buddha says, no, you can if you want that. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> but, have to, but maybe we have to do Rohatsu Sashimi. <laughs> 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 this one's almost over. 